And we want to thank you all for listening now and always. No, that's not right. I want to try something different. Now and uh, in the future and in the past. And forever and ever and ever. Thru- throughout the <laughs> multiverse. <laughs> Welcome to The Geek in Review, the podcast focused on innovative and creative ideas in the legal industry. I'm Marlene Gaybauer. And I'm Greg Lambert. So Marlene, we have a great interview this week with Haley Moss, the author of Great Minds Think Differently on the topic of neurodiversity in the legal industry. And it was absolutely fascinating and and inspiring to talk with her about a topic that she's written about for uh, practically half of her life now. Yeah, I mean, I, I really appreciate how she embraces neurodiversity and has essentially made it her life's work. Um, you know, she has several books on her experience, and she has a really robust speaking career as well. You know, I appreciate that she has such a strong voice and is really an excellent advocate. Yeah, usually I hold my thoughts on the discussion until after the interview plays, but there were a couple of things that Haley brought up in this conversation that that I really would like for listeners to think about as as she discusses them. And the first one is about the concept of ableism, and that is the bias that we have for able-bodied individuals, especially in the workplace. So she references this a few times, and, and I think it's important that we think really think about that specific bias because, quite frankly, I think it's a bias that oftentimes we just overlook. It is absolutely critical that we examine this because with more and more people being diagnosed with things like autism, ADHD, dyslexia, just to name a few, um, you know, organizations are going to end up hiring people who live with these diagnoses and they're going to need to be prepared and prepare their workforce for how to interact with these folks appropriately. Yeah, and I, I think we already have, obviously. I think it's just that a lot of people have masked this, and it's unfortunate that they have to be somebody different at work than their true selves. But mm-hmm. the second thing that Haley says is something that's toward the end of our discussion, and that is that we look at neurodiversity disability in a vacuum. As though it's not something that can happen to just anyone. She says this one thing, and she says that this is the only minority or protected group that you can join at any point in your life, and that that is having a disability. So, And I really hadn't thought about that before. I'm really glad that she stated it so clearly. We are very excited to welcome Haley Moss, author of Great Minds Think Differently, nor diversity for lawyers and other professionals. Haley, welcome to the Geek and Review. Thank you so much for having me. So Haley, you spoke at my firm during a diversity and inclusion luncheon that we hold each month here. And I was honestly, I was just blown away by your frankness and honesty of what you were saying, what it was like to be a lawyer who was diagnosed with autism as a child and share those personal and professional experiences as you become an author, an advocate, attorney, and public speaker for the topic of neurodiversity. And and I was really excited that, uh, or I was so excited that I actually reached out to you. I think, I don't even know if you had finished the talk, but I had already... <laughs> reached out to see if you would come you on the podcast. You were pretty ambitious. So I love it. I was, I was. <laughs> so it was very kind of you to take the time to uh, talk he with us. He knows a good guest when he sees one. <laughs> I, I do, I do. Jump, I'm flattered. Jump when, when the iron's hot. We've discussed neurodiversity on this show before, but would you mind just laying out some of the groundwork here and explaining what neurodiversity is, especially when it comes to how it applies to the legal culture and profession? Absolutely. So I think when we talk about neurodiversity, we're really bad at conceptualizing it because we think this is new. What language do we use? Who is covered? What does this even mean? Because, and I think a lot of this comes from the fact that neurodiversity is a fairly new term that really originated in the late 90s. So it was coined by an autistic sociologist named Judy Singer, and it was really explaining this idea that we have different brains. We're neurodiverse as a society. We all have different brains. Wonderful. So what neurodiversity really gets at is that difference of brains is natural. It's something that we should expect. And it's something that deserves to be accepted and respected. 
So no matter whether you're neurotypical and your brain acts in expected normal, whatever normal is supposed to mean, ways, or you're neurodivergent and your brain acts outside of that box of what we're expecting, that you still deserve that same respect and dignity and acceptance. So folks who are neurodivergent might include, but definitely not limited to, autism, ADHD, learning disabilities, psychiatric and mental health disabilities, intellectual disabilities. So that's not comprehensive, but that's kind of the big categories. And with the legal profession, this is really important because we've always had a neurodiverse legal profession, whether or not we want to admit it. And we often have a lot of stigma surrounding a lot of these different conditions and neurodivergent conditions and different ways of being and traits especially. So it's rooted in how we talk about professionalism, who we see as being a good culture fit, that there's so much that if we really kind of extract it and we realize that we are having these different types of biases and things like ableism since neurodiversity is very tied to disability. And a lot of these conditions that you might hear people go, is it a difference? Is it a disability? Is it both? Is it neither? And it's definitely in the both category, if you ask me. And we can get into that if we want to. But I know for me, autism is both disabling and it makes me different. And it's interesting and life is fun that way. I don't know what it's like to be neurotypical. I don't really want to know. I'm fine with it. I'm at peace. I don't really want to be cured or anything. That's kind of my little political version of how I feel about autism and neurodiversity more broadly. But the ableism component and those microaggressions and stigmas, I think, are things that lawyers really face. And as we know, our profession has a really big initiative about lawyer mental health, but it really ignores that this is something that is natural, that there's not something inherently wrong with you. If you have these differences, if you're processing information differently or in an unexpected way, and it's something that actually, if we really look at it more broadly, it's to our benefit that we do have different ways of processing information, of solving problems, and ultimately disability and neurodiversity drive innovation. So Haley, you kind of touched a little bit on, um, you know, things that might come up in, in a job environment. So being quote unquote friendly, looking people in the eye, things like that. Is there anything in particular about the legal profession that makes it more challenging for the neurodivergent than other professions? Oh my gosh. I think when we start unpacking so much of legal culture, we can be here all day of what makes it (laughs) an extra barrier to access. (laughs) And one of those first job interview barriers to access is those on-campus interviews that I know that many of us have loved, hated, or absolutely dreaded or skipped while we were in law school. So think about OCI in this very... Stay with me for this for a minute. So... You know, OCI has a very different set of rules than most other job interviews. They might be held in hotels. You might be meeting with a bunch of different people. Sometimes it's formal. Then you get taken out to maybe a lunch or a dinner. And that does not go well with this conventional idea of what job interviews are, is that you have to have these behaviors. You have to do this. You know it's going to be formal, that it's in an office, that it ends the minute you walk out the door and you send your thank you email 20. 24 hours later at the maximum, and there's these very prescribed rules you know you should be following. And OCI really throws that off. And if you are someone whose brain is really dependent on that predictability, on that routine, or you're someone who struggles with neurotypical social cues, things like eye contact and things like that, just imagine what a barrier that is not being adequately prepared for that. And I think in legal, what makes that even more difficult is when you have folks that work in, say, like vocational rehab or other job coaching services that people who do have more support needs or young adults who are neurodivergent might be accessing, they don't have that experience either. So they can't really prepare you for that. So I like to say that is kind of my first big one. But I think generally when it comes to law firm culture in particular, we really are looking for folks who are able to interact with people who are seen as personable, that do make that eye contact, and we don't realize that those measures don't always predict who's going to be a great lawyer, and some of them are just our own personal biases. So I personally am not great at eye contact. Eye contact for me requires that all of my energy goes to looking at your face versus actually listening to what you're saying. I will put that energy into looking at you, make you feel comfortable, and then I'll have no clue what just happened, and I will ask you to repeat the question. And chances are you'll go, 
but you were looking at me. You were listening. You'll be thinking that, and you'll be, and then no. So I wasn't always listening because I was trying to put all that extra energy into that. It doesn't mean you can't trust me. It means that's not how I best can focus and process information. So I think when we talk about some of those different traits as well, that's something that kind of comes down to. What does this mean? Why do we think this is important? And we need to see this from a different perspective. Okay. So so if, if you're having trouble making eye contact and that basically forces you to expend too much energy uh, and not be able to focus on what the person is saying, how do you educate people about that? You know, how, how do you get them to understand that, no, it's not that I'm not paying attention to you by not looking at you. It's like I, that actually helps me pay attention to you, even though that's something that you might not be used to. It really depends on the situation. So if it's something that I don't know and I don't have that comfort level with and I don't want to disclose, I will just stare at your nose and you won't know the difference. And that will be my compromise. If it's someone that I really do know, I might just say I, I'm i able to best listen if I if my gaze is somewhere else or if I'm doodling at the same time. Because we know there's lots of doodlers and fidgeters and people who always have something going on in their hands, but it doesn't mean they're totally distracted. And that helps them regulate their attention. So sometimes I might just lead with one of those I do best when type statements. And usually that takes care of a lot of needs that I have without having to go that formal accommodation route or really having to say too much about my disability if I don't want to. So I usually do that when I ask for instructions because you know how many times, especially for young lawyers, we've gotten things of, go write this motion. And you're sitting there going, what do I do? How long is it supposed to be? What is the thing that the partner is looking for? And the first time that happened to me, I got the go write this motion and I stared at the wall for four hours because I just didn't know what to do. And eventually I ended up going back after I finally got the courage to say something and said, I work best when you give me clear instructions. That didn't tell you that I don't want to disappoint you, that I'm scared, that I have all sorts of other feelings. It just said, if you spell out what you need from me, I will get it done. And that was enough to start that process for me in an informal way that my employer felt okay with it. And I felt like I was actually able to do my job. So... I think when it does come to that disclosure component and advocating for yourself, it's very case by case. It's how much do you want to share? How much do you feel comfortable sharing? Or do you even feel safe sharing? So when we talk about disclosure, it's kind of a mess because it is so individualized and situational. I, I was going to follow up and say there's a doodler on the call here. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> I'm a, I'm a huge, I doodle all the time. And the first time I ever got shamed for it was in high school U.S. history. You got shamed? For, oh, you know, I got shamed for it, too. Mm-hmm. Like, the people think you're not paying attention when you do it, but you are act- you actually are paying attention when you do it. See, paying the, wor- the worst is, is that I was an illustrator. So, <laughs> so mm-hmm. my doodles were really elaborate and really nice. And if I really liked it after class, I would actually try to paint it or do something else with it. So it really looked like it wasn't paying attention because they were actually kind of decent. <laughs> Yeah, it wasn't Greg, just like Greg a bunch knows. of swirls and like the that little S that all of my friends drew it was like full on anime characters and other stuff. And my U.S. history teacher was like, how are you like not failing my class? Right, right, <laughs> right. Yeah, Greg knows like same here. It's like doing a lot of fashion designs while I'm listening. But uh, that's exactly. it, that was really and interesting it you brought that up. regulate my attention because my hands have to be doing something. My hands are always yeah. doing something. Yeah. But, but what I was going to follow up about was clear instructions. And and I had to chuckle about that because I think so often, and I'm not going to just pick on law, but I think in in any job situation, normal situation, you know, personal situations, it seems really hard for people to give very detailed, clear instructions. And, And I'm, you know, I'm guilty of that as well. And I'm just trying to think of, again, how how best to coach people to do that? I, I always think about what's the most important thing. So you obviously want a thoughtful answer to this, or even that you know that there is an argument in there that is complete garbage and that you need to basically refute it. Like, please research why their argument is garbage. Especially, I think about this especially as someone who is 
relatively inexperienced because we do have lots of people who are inexperienced because law school doesn't always prepare you. The bar exam doesn't always prepare you for that first moment when it's like, go do the thing. So I think about what would you tell someone who might not have that complex understanding or might not be seasoned enough to kind of know what's expected? What I always do now or in what's been recommended to me is every time that I work with new people, I make a list of bullet points of things they should know about working with me. And usually if I'm with a team, we all end up doing it. So I'll tell, I'll tell you three really important things about me. I'll tell you I'm not a morning person. I'll tell you that I'm, sometimes I might forget to answer emails, so it's okay if you follow up. I promise you're not bothering me. And I'll tell you something like, phone calls make me anxious because then I'm concerned that I really did something wrong or that somebody died or that something bad happened. And my immediate response is defense. So if I tell you just those couple things about me, you're thinking, okay, so we should schedule our any major meetings, probably not when you're first waking up, that things that are text or email are probably a better way to communicate with you and try to be clear about certain instructions. Like that's enough to be like, okay, I can work with that. But everybody has those needs and it doesn't tell you anything about my disability status. It doesn't tell you if I'm neurodivergent or neurotypical. It just tells you these are things that would make things go smoother. So I look at that as kind of a, this is something an everybody can do thing. But I think it's super helpful, especially because we do have all these concerns socially. Like if we do follow up with someone, are we annoying them? Are we being mean? Are we doing something wrong? And the truth is, at least for me, you're not. But I know that some folks have different feelings. And usually there's ways that we're able to accommodate them without realizing that we're doing it and also helping ourselves at the same time. Think about calendar invites. Like it helps you, but it really, really helps me. Because if I don't have a calendar invite for something, I don't know what happens. What you said there reminded me, I, and I think it was Brene Brown that has, I forget which book it was where she was talking about that, where she would get people together and say, pick five things that are their values. Mm-hmm. And it sounds like that's almost in the same vein as that, as you're, you're asking people to say, pick a few things that are really important for you on how you best work, how you work, how you work how you with others. Work. Um, so yeah, that's uh, uh, very very interesting because I it was funny because I actually had sent my boss uh, that same recommendation that that's what we do just as senior managers. Um, so it, that was that was ringing a bell as, as you were as you were talking about it. I guess just um, everything needs to be inclusive and accessible forever, and that's one of those ways that we're able to kind of design with difference in mind, but without outing anybody particularly. Right. That kind of runs right into the the question I have is. One of the issues that we have when just drafting the questions for the neurodiversity topic mm-hmm. is being very careful on not over overstepping our bounds or asking people to share more than, than what they're comfortable with. So how do you, you know, set your own boundaries of discussing neurodiversity, and I would say specifically autism, with those who may interview you for a job or your boss or your peers or subordinates or even podcast host. It's so situational. Yeah. So, but there are. Well, see, law school has taught you that you the, can it, say depends it, it depends. It depends. It really <laughs> does. But, 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 think... but that's going to be, that's going to be hard to implement, say, you know, for a firm where mm-hmm. they have to have some sort of methodology. I think about why people don't share, because I think that's almost easier to understand as to why someone does. So I think when people don't share, because I know why I won't share. I have not shared because I felt unsafe. I felt scared. I felt that this is someone who might not be in my corner. There's so many, or maybe I was at a place where I didn't feel comfortable with that about myself. So I think when we come to that, that's a whole other thing is how do we create that culture of inclusion necessarily? I think about that. But for me, I usually am pretty comfortable sharing, but like most people, I have boundaries. So I work a lot with, and a lot of my audiences are often teachers and families as well on top of lawyers, and families of autistic and neurodivergent kids and family members really want to know a lot of information because it's rare to them sometimes that they get to meet an adult who has the same condition as their child. And sometimes they will ask questions that I will never, ever feel comfortable answering. So it might be that they're asking about what my SAT scores were, or it might be asking about something like 
if I've been in romantic relationships. And these things for me are just uncomfortable. What? <laughs> no, like, yes, I'm sorry. I, I'm like, I was trying to be quiet. And I'm like, what? No, that, you, that you, you, would really, you would anybody. genuinely be surprised of what kind of questions mm. with disability that people want to know. And I know this because I TA'd a disability studies class in college. And everybody's biggest question every semester was about people in wheelchairs having sex. Like, that was all people really wanted to know at that age. <laughs> so I oh, no. so Because people always had questions. And, of course, we had to actually answer these questions as best we can based on documentaries and different information from self-advocates who actually had expertise in these areas. But I do realize something when you are sharing your own story, whether it's to get accommodations, whether it's that you want to bring your full self to work, no matter what the situation is, you really have to set boundaries. Because you could end up getting in one of those situations where you're getting uncomfortable questions, not the like, oh, when were you diagnosed or can you bring a bunch of medical paperwork questions, but actual curious probing questions because people have that little experience or knowledge or expectation of people with disabilities more broadly. So, so they're, they're not trying to be nosy. They just want to They understand. genuinely just don't know. They either genuinely don't know or they're just that curious because it just never occurred to them like, oh, wait, there are real adults out there. So I think with disclosure for me, I look at it as how can I do this for me? It's almost inevitable. You Google my name, you're going to find out. So it's how do I be proactive about this in a way that isn't weird? That's how I always see it. So sometimes it might be even having something like my book on my resume. Oh, what got you interested in the topic? Oh, I don't know. I can't really lie about that one yet. No. I'm not that smart. I'm not creative enough to come up with the, oh, you know, I just think it's interesting because you will know that I am completely, like, full of it. You'll just know. <laughs> Put it lightly. You'll know. So for me, I, and I think for me, especially in, like, an interview context, you have to almost phrase it as something that's not such a def- – you have to be careful in how you phrase it because you don't want to be perceived as less. You don't want it being perceived as a deficit. You still have to be able to say, I am perfectly capable to do this. I am absolutely competent. I might just need more support. So I always think that it's very personal how you disclose what those pros and cons are and kind of be ready to advocate for yourself more than you probably had wanted to. And if you do get those really uncomfortable questions, I think you have to just set a boundary. And I think especially if you're a young person, it's that much harder to do. And learning how to set those boundaries, even when people push back against those boundaries, is really, really tough. Well, I think that's that's good advice for everyone, quite honestly, in terms of, of, of setting boundaries. I want to flip the question a little bit. Do you have suggestions of what boundaries are for others, the people who, who want to better understand proper interactions with those who may be neurodivergent? Um, you know, what sort of behaviors should they adopt and avoid? Oh my gosh. I think with avoiding is easier to start. I think first, I think treating us like people is probably the easiest thing to say in the thing that is sometimes the hardest for certain folks. So for me, I realize that people sometimes conflate autism with intellectual disability. There are plenty of autistic people who do have intellectual disabilities. I am not one of them. And that's not a slight against intellectual disabilities or anything since those folks are super worthy and valid and deserve all the love and they have that many more extra barriers in their way. But the way that people with intellectual disabilities get talked down to is completely unfair. And when it happens to me, I want to scream. I think they want to scream as well that you get the baby voice and people treat you like you're like a little kid. And I've had it happen with attorneys is they don't know how to treat me. And then they'll like pull out the baby voice. Oh my God. Or they'll do this. I'm so sorry. You're so inspiring. And I'm like, I just had a question. <laughs> like, <laughs> it, It's some of these things that you realize don't happen to non-disabled and neurotypical people, but that they tend to do. So I try to avoid anything that's tokenizing or patronizing. I think that's kind of a good rule of thumb is just that dignity and respect. I think it's okay to ask questions and to be curious. I have nothing wrong with curiosity. But again, when we're talking about boundaries, if there's a boundary drawn, that is a sign of trust of saying, this is where I don't feel comfortable. Please respect that. It is not a personal thing. I It is not personal for me whenever someone asks me something about like relationships or something and I decide this is not 
for or discussion. It's not personal. It's just self-preservation type stuff. And it's just I don't feel comfortable. And that might be a boundary that I've set with somebody else too. So I think when we're talking about – I think boundaries is a big one. I think asking people how they like to be described or how they identify, I think that's always important because I think that people have very different relationships if with their own conditions and if they have a disability or if they are neurodivergent. So I know folks who have mental health conditions that won't identify with neurodiversity or I know people who extremely do. And I know people that like me will say they're autistic, people who say they have autism, like there's no correct one size fits all approach. I also think that this goes for everyone, but communicating clearly and directly, I think is super helpful for a lot of us. I know for me, it's very difficult to read between the lines and some of those social cues. I love when people are direct with me. It's very unnatural for a lot of people because they are told not to do that. But for neurodivergent people, a lot of us, it's very much natural to us. So I feel like there's two different languages of social communication being spoken sometimes. And instead, we're just expected to adapt to how neurotypicals communicate for everything. And from the time we're young, we're taught that the way that we naturally communicate is a failed version of that. So I think it's important, especially when we see some of these traits as well, but are also really empathetic in that I know we have this very high ideal of what professionalism is and all these ideas about what is expected. And I think sometimes looking a little bit deeper and being more empathetic about that is something that we can all do and be curious and empathetic. So I think about my friends with ADHD who are chronically late. And the first thing we think is they can't get it together. They're lazy. They're unprofessional. We put all of these immediate stigmatizing things. A lot of my friends with ADHD are time blind. They don't realize how much time has passed. They might not realize that they had to leave 10 minutes ago, that they might have gotten hyper-focused or on something that they were interested in or excited about, or they just got distracted with something or their executive function just didn't quite work and they had a bad brain day. I think that when we realize that it might be something else, not that this person is lazy and doesn't care, that it makes us better human beings for realizing that and for being as supportive as we can. So when I know folks are chronically late, I'm like, is everything okay? Not the, oh my God, this person's just lazy or that they just Mm. don't care or they're not making an effort. I always am like, are you okay? Is something going on? Like, I try to be as gracious as I can because I know that we're all human at the end of the day. And that sometimes it is deeper or there is something else. Like, you might not want to tell me that you struggle with things like time blindness or executive functioning, but you might want me to know that it's not a moral failing. And I think that we do conflate a lot of these types of things that might be symptoms of something larger as moral failings. Interesting. Interesting. So Haley, in in instances like in education, there are those who are classified as neurodivergent and they can receive educational plans that legally, at least theoretically, are supposed to be followed. What about in the the workplace? Are there legal protections that the ADA or other laws out there that legislate and provide uh, protections within the workplace? So the big one for the workplace is still Title I of the Americans with Disabilities Act. So I know we think that is still new to us because it's from 1990. I like to remind you the ADA is older than me. So we've all had plenty of time to figure this out by now, hopefully. You would hope. So, But most of what the ADA really does give guidance on is this very broad definition of what disability is. That, of course, I know courts still sometimes try to figure it out, and now they have a little bit more guidance, but it's very broad of, like, this physical or mental impairment that substantially limits one or more major life activities. And if you look at what a major life activity, it's pretty much very broad. (laughs) And basically what Title I says is that if you're an employer with 15 or more employees, that you can't discriminate on the basis of disability. So you are provided to – you're required to provide reasonable accommodations – at any point in the employment process, as long as it's not basically an undue hardship. So basically, it can't be impossible or inordinately expensive. So whenever I talk about this in my last firm job, my last firm had fluorescent lights. And fluorescent lights hum, they are bright, they give migraines, there are many, many reasons that people don't like them. For me, they hum and I can't block that out no matter how hard I try. It's just so distracting. And every time I mention that, somebody will be like, oh, my God, I can't unhear that now. 
So I apologize. <laughs> yeah, thanks. I apologize <laughs> if now you're not going to be able to unhear that for the rest of the time we're talking. So if I wanted a reasonable accommodation, I probably can't demand the office switch everything over to LEDs. It's probably not going to happen to switch out an entire two-story building as much as I would have loved it. And maybe it might have been more environmentally friendly. I can give you 50 million reasons I would be all for it. On top of the fact they don't hum and they don't give me migraines. Unfortunately, that is probably not reasonable. It's not impossible, but it's probably expensive and it's probably just a lot of effort. So what would be reasonable is maybe if we had, maybe there's somewhere quieter in the office. Maybe there's somewhere that didn't have fluorescent lights. Maybe I can shut them off. Maybe I can close the door or I can wear headphones. But there's so many different things that I could do that would be low cost or no cost to my employer that we can agree upon together. We ultimately agreed upon headphones because as long as I can hear the phone ring, that was kind of the stipulation there, which I thought was fine. I didn't have a problem with that because, you know, there's always calls coming in. You have to be ready. So I was able to block out the noise, which was fine. So I think about what is reasonable and that looks different for different people. So maybe it's being able to fidget, maybe it's getting up a little bit, maybe it's having kind of a quiet space that you can go run off to if you're just feeling overwhelmed, or maybe it's even something with billable hours if you if that's essential as part of what you struggle with with your disability. So I know, at least for me, I, do, I used to ask how long something should take, ideally, because I would get really hyper-focused if there was something super interesting in research, and I could spend the whole day on it, but that doesn't mean I should be doing that. Or that's realistic for billing for the whole day of eight hours of, oh, this is a really interesting rabbit hole. I'm going to learn everything there is to know about this really niche issue that maybe it was a three-hour issue. And that's what I should be allocating to best manage my time. So sometimes I would ask for help with things like managing my time so I knew what to do. And I think we have to be creative. I think it really is an interactive process, which is something that you hear people say about accommodations from an HR perspective is it's interactive. But I don't think that means it has to be super formal all the time. I think that a lot of it is just being able to communicate with whoever you're working with and being able to advocate for yourself. So if I just say I need clear instructions, we can figure out what that means. We can figure out if that means you need to write something out, if you need to give me a visual, if there's a template from something that's been done before. There's many ways that we could figure out what that means. It's just having that jumping off point to realize what you need or what you think you might need. And I think especially coming from law school or an educational setting, that's really difficult to do because in the past, you've probably had different teachers, different psychologists, different people assessing your needs all the time, or you had this plan that followed you for many, many years and you knew that, okay, since kindergarten, I've been getting extra time. Therefore, I will probably be able to get extra time in law school as long as that somebody says that it's still relevant. I did not do extra time, which is why for me, accommodations were always a disaster because I didn't need it. And that was always what was offered to me. And I didn't know I had other options because no one told me there were other options. So looking back, there are things that I think I needed, but I didn't know I can ask for. But I think in the workplace, it really is more interactive than it is when you do have things like IEP meetings in K through 12 or if you had a 504 plan, or if you worked with a university disability services center or staff. One of the things that, and, and you you mentioned both here and uh, when you were presenting at my firm, basically what you're saying here is I work better when blank. I have headphones when I uh, do this. It, it reminds me of there was a study decades ago when when the ADA required just the the sidewalk ramps for wheelchair access and it turned out that it didn't just help people that were in wheelchairs it helped for pretty much everybody then and I think you know a lot of times we figure this out as well that by asking people how do you work better and accommodating, you know, and doing the small accommodations on the individual level, it makes sense and it makes for a more efficient workplace. So I just uh, wanted to toss that out. I'm glad that you did because I think that honestly leading from that universal design perspective is something that we need to be doing going forward as well. So you might not need to know who is most impacted, but if we imagine and redesign things with that person in mind or those types of marginalizations in mind, we all benefit. So I think about that with not even just the sidewalks, but I usually think about it with like closed captions is when we use captions on our TV, 
chances are you are not deaf or hard of hearing. And that's, of course, the intended audience and who it was designed for. And think about why you use something like closed captions. Maybe you're learning a new language. Maybe you're just very busy. Maybe you're really good with visual information. Maybe you want those extra social cues that come in there. That's why I like closed captions because they'll tell you like if the music is really tense, really dramatic, or someone's laughing or scoffing. So I immediately know if they're being sarcastic because sometimes I can't tell. So there's all sorts of different people who end up benefiting from this, not just people who are deaf or hard of hearing. That you have your second language learners, you have us having access to foreign language television that we might not have had before because we don't speak that language. There's so many different things that come into that equation. So if we really do design our environments with more marginalized people in mind, whether it's race, disability, ethnicity, gender, if we're really thinking about all of these different factors and we try to make policy and do things with people who are marginalized in mind, it ends up benefiting all of us whether or not we know it right away. And we end up taking some of those things for granted. So Haley, we talked a few months ago with Dr. Caitlin Handron uh, with the Ropes and Gray Insights Lab, and she disclosed to her boss that she was bipolar and wanted to help normalize her own neurodivergency. Uh, She said that her psychiatrist was actually surprised that she would do this and worried that she was putting herself at risk um, by not hiding her identity as bipolar, which Dr. Handron stated was, of course, her legal right to do. You know, it seems there may be a fear of stigma for some people to disclose their neurodivergent identity and to mask their differences, yet if they don't disclose, they risk losing the protections afforded to them. Um, How do employers and employees best resolve this catch-22? It's a mess. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think there's a perfect answer. That does not give me a lot of faith. But I don't think there's a perfect one-size-fits-all answer because it kind of goes back to why people do and don't share. And I think a lot of employees get boxed into sharing when they are having performance issues when it needs to be known because there's no other option. And I think there is that inherent bias that makes it very difficult to share. And especially with something like bipolar disorder, which is one of the more highly stigmatized forms of neurodivergence. So I think a lot of corporations and workplaces look at neurodiversity as kind of like acceptable neurodiversity of like Mm. autism with low support needs, ADHD, learning disabilities, and maybe your run-of-the-mill type anxiety, depression that might be seasonal. It might be something that's easily managed. They don't think about things that are more highly stigmatized, like a bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, and intellectual disability. That I think it's really important. That kind of goes back to where that universal design is, is really thinking of these folks in mind when we're doing things. But I think with that catch-22, it's really... I understand why people mask. I also understand that it's compounded by a variety of different factors. So especially, I know for me, I am more likely to mask when I feel uncomfortable and if my personal safety, I think, might be at risk. I'm aware that I am also female. I am aware that there are people who might have different forms of marginalization working against them as well. So they might be neurodivergent, they might be female, they might be queer, they might be people of color. And that also impacts their safety as well and how they're going to be experiencing the world. So I think that we have to see that ableism is a huge part of this. So I think a lot of that, at least for employers, is unlearning a lot of their own biases. I think there's a lot of bias. I think there's a lot of ableism, not just in the legal profession, but in most of our society. And I think sometimes it's very obvious and sometimes it's very sneaky. And sometimes it's just so embedded in our culture that we don't think about it. And sometimes I catch it. So even with the language that we use, there's so many different ways to kind of unpack ableism as a whole. But that's kind of my thing is when we're disclosing, I think it's why are you doing this? And if you know that you might need that protection, you feel like you might have to. And also, I think when we're sharing our stories on our own terms, it does help end that stigma to some degree. It humanizes these issues. It humanizes these conditions that a lot of us just think of as these people that are undeserving or moral failures or whatever it may be. So I think that openness does end up changing things for the better, but it should be on our terms. So that's why I'm really glad that you told me about a past guest who chose to share that, not because she felt boxed in, but she chose to do that. One of the best things that people say is, how can we support you? Or how can I support you? You don't have to have all the answers. 
please don't tell me you're sorry for me. That's usually the easiest thing to like avoid doing. I don't feel sorry for me. You shouldn't feel sorry either. I still have the same needs and desires and things in my life that make me happy like anybody else. Like I still have people I love. I have a job I find fulfilling. I have a roof over my head. Like I have all the stuff that people want in life. Like I'm happy. I don't feel sorry about that. Mm-hmm. So Haley, you have written that women who are autistic often have an even harder time in the workplace than even their male counterparts. Why is that? I think it goes back to that intersectionality component. So I think especially when we think of stereotypes of certain disabilities and neurodiversity, we often think of men, especially with autism and ADHD. Women and non-binary people and trans people and people who are not essentially cisgender men have that much of a harder time getting access to services. They might get diagnosed or identified later in life. There's so many different things there. And a lot of these individuals are high masking and high camouflaging. So they might be working overtime to try to act in socially acceptable ways or to try to take on a neurotypical type persona. And it's often to our own detriment that it, as much as it does maybe alleviate things like bullying or workplace harassment, it also takes its toll on our self-esteem, how we feel, our own mental health. And I think that that's something that we have to be mindful of. I kind of do worry, especially because I know a lot of folks do get missed. And then there's this issue that, that people who are gender diverse often have of, well, you don't have this lifelong history. And there's so many reasons people don't have lifelong history. But the fact that a lot of criteria do have these eight-year-old boys in mind and a lot of these conditions are viewed as things that happen to eight-year-old boys and not adults I think that makes it that much harder too no nobody seems to understand that the eight-year-old boys grow up and exactly but adults. everyone still thinks but everyone still thinks <laughs> of like ADHD is the the second grader bouncing off the walls not yeah. an adult who might have attention issues or might not be able to plan through their schedule or might fall down the rabbit hole of research and I, I know you were talking about may not have a history of, of this. Um, I know when when my kids were in middle school, there were no uh, th- there were no female students who uh, were diagnosed with ADHD. They were all male students. Mm-hmm. So it's because of how <laughs> they diagnose it, how it's expected to manifest. Like I know if I was speaking earlier and I didn't have a speaking delay and wasn't minimally speaking until or non-speaking for a certain period of my life I don't know if I would have had that same diagnosis or correct identification if to be quite honest with you and I say that because I was a good student I did well in school I was quiet I respected authority you wouldn't have known if I was struggling with attention because I was doodling or something else. You would have thought, well, she gets good grades. You weren't disruptive. I wasn't disruptive. I was quiet. I respected authority. My grades were good. Like you wouldn't think that was a problem child or what we think is what we consider a problem child or a bad kid or someone with an emotional disturbance or any of that types of stuff. But looking back, there are times I'm like, there's something that was definitely different. I mean, I'm lucky that I had a diagnosis since I was a child, and that's a huge privilege. And I realize why that's a privilege at this point in my life, other than getting access to services earlier, and that there are all sorts of different discrepancies and disparities across race and SES and different things as well. So I think we have to really understand that these issues are intersectional. I think that's probably the biggest thing that sometimes gets lost as we look at neurodiversity and disability in a vacuum, not that this is something that can happen to anyone. And it's also the only minority group you can join at any point in your life is disability. I, I hadn't thought about that. <laughs> if you're lucky enough to be alive for a long time, it happens to you. Yeah, or you true. can be, or you'll end up becoming a caregiver, or like the only thing that really separates folks is about a split second, and that's something that I saw with a video actually that was by a Paralympian who was in a freak boating accident, and she's like, the only thing that separated me from disability was a split, split second, and I was like, yeah, that, that sounds about right, and I think about. Folks who would acquire things like traumatic brain injuries or they develop something like epilepsy, like it's not something they get to choose or that they might have been born with. Well, Haley, you didn't just begin your work uh, by uh, helping explain neurodiversity and, and living with autism after you graduated law school. Um, I actually went out, I'm, I'm holding it up, and purchased your, your book, Middle School, the stuff that uh, nobody tells you about. Enjoy getting to know 15-year-old <laughs> it- me. 
<laughs> I, yeah. I, I can tell you, I was thinking about that before I jumped on. I was like, I would not want to read anything I wrote as a 15-year-old. I still feel, um, honestly, I feel that way about stuff that I wrote in college because I realized how much my opinions and my worldview has expanded. But it makes me really grateful because I realized how much I've grown. So I, I got this book for my wife, who's a middle school librarian. And um, and again, you wrote this when, when you were 15, mm-hmm. and you've written a, a few more books since. What is it that compels you to write and speak on these topics as you live through them? Because you've, you've written on these for half your life, more, well, more about half, half your life, life now. now. Yeah, and I think for me, it's really just about how I want to be able to help other people. I think that there's so many barriers, there's so many things that need to be dealt with, but I think it's really powerful that we're able to tell these stories. And when you're able to tell your story on your own terms, there's something to be said for that. But I look at it as I don't tell my story for the sake of telling it, I don't do it to inspire people. I do it because I genuinely want to help somebody. If so, I want things to be more accessible and inclusive for the next generation. I want the next group of autistic middle schoolers not to have the same barriers to access that I did. I want things to be better for everybody. And that's honestly why I feel compelled to share. Other than the fact I get really geeky excited about this stuff, I just think that if something can be better for the next group of young people, then I did something right. Your next book, which comes out this month, is called The Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook. Who is the audience for this book? And how has your experience of entering the legal profession shaped the story you're telling in the book? I am so excited about this book because this is the book that I wish that I had when I was a young person, especially because we assume that independence is this very big mountain. We assume that we have to hit the top of the mountain. And the top of the mountain, especially in disability services, sometimes comes across as you have to be able to do everything forever by yourself. That isn't true. And when you eventually move out or you realize that there are things that you don't want your parents to do for you, you realize you didn't really get the tools to do those things. So even if it's something like managing your money and applying for a credit card or even registering to vote, there's all sorts of different things or keeping your house clean, which is something I struggle a lot with or trying new food or figuring out how to prioritize when you go to the grocery store, all these random life skills that don't always get taught that it's assumed that somehow you're going to know. And for autistic and neurodivergent people, sometimes it's really difficult to get a handle on that. Or someone didn't take the time to teach you how to also advocate for yourself or why that's important. So for me, that was something I really wanted to address is I wanted to write the guide that I wish that I had had. And also what made it fun is I got to interview a bunch of different experts and people with lived experience about what they recommended. So I got to talk about Some of the messier things like grief, because I know especially for young adults, it's something that we don't talk about. And a lot of us might lose grandparents or family members or pets. And I got to talk to someone who explicitly works with autistic people on grief. And things like trying new food, which is a big source of anxiety for me. I got to talk to a psychologist who works with autistic people with food issues because it's a big thing in our community. And I learned how to try something new. And I wanted to share that with everybody. I got so excited. Like, look, there's an actual science to make this less scary about trying something that I've never had before. Because I'm (laughs) so scared to try things. That's something I'm not always proud of admitting. I'm very embarrassed about it. But it's a thing that really does impede so much of my life. But I really did want to write this. And what helps with my legal background is answering some of the tough questions for people. So I know we have lots of issues in our community that surround law enforcement or what even things like what the ADA is. And a lot of people want this information, but they don't get it from someone who has lived experience and professional experience at the same time. Is it's one thing if someone who has professional experience tells it to us, but it's another if you have someone who also has lived experience and has interacted with the legal system in some way, shape, or form, even if it's from our side and not on the side of a plaintiff or the side of someone who is an accused or or a witness, that it's really important that we get those perspectives so then folks know kind of what's out there too. I just want people to feel empowered. I want them to feel that the lie of independence they've been sold isn't necessarily all there is. So if there are things that you do need help with, that's okay too. And know how to ask for support. Because I think as a young person, that's the thing that I didn't quite get that I was allowed to ask for things or I didn't know that I was allowed to ask for things that weren't being offered. Kind of even thinking about law school when I just get offered extra time or college when I got offered extra time and that's not what I needed. I needed a note taker, but I didn't know that. 
because I didn't know I would write down everything because I had no idea it was important. And then I didn't end up listening because I didn't know it was important. Uh, I felt like I did the same thing. <laughs> exactly. Like I would have benefited so much from having someone who was really good at taking notes, who was able to focus and do that. Like that would have been a game changer. I didn't for even me. know you could get that. Yeah, like, that you can actually you get, get note, a note taker. That you can, you can you can get note taking services, or someone is required from your class to be able to share notes with you, mm-hmm. as an accommodation. That you're actually allowed to get that. But and some some professors know that that's a thing, and they might ask at the beginning of the term about a note taker. But I didn't know that was for me. I thought that was people who had reading disabilities. So the way that we look at a lot of these solutions kind of is this very much a binary of, oh, you have this, this is what we're going to offer you. Well, this is fascinating. Haley Moss, we really appreciate you taking the time to to talk with us today. Yeah, Haley, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. Thank you. Well, I hope the listeners enjoyed this discussion as much as we did. I mean, I really appreciate that. I'm Haley not sure Moss. that's possible. <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I, I really appreciate that Haley was uh, so willing to have these conversations and explain why neurodiversity is something that we should understand, that we should embrace, and make the appropriate accommodations so that we really can all benefit. So thanks again to Haley Moss for talking to us. Her new book, The Young Autistic Adults Independence Handbook, is actually out now in paperback and electronic format. And I've put links on the show notes for that book and her other books as well. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening today and every day to the Geek and Review podcast. If you enjoy the show, please share it with a colleague. We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on social media. I can be found at M on Twitter. And I can be reached at Glambert on Twitter as well. Or you can leave us a voicemail on the Geek and Review hotline at 713-487-7270. And as always, the music you hear is from Jerry David DeSicca. Thank you very much, Jerry. Thanks, Jerry. All right, Marlene, I will talk with you later. Okay, ciao for now. <laughs>